In this episode of Science Stories, I talked with cardiologist, MD, and PhD, Juan Torrado. The first half an hour, we talked about his research and his work, and about some mind-blowing recent advances in the cardiovascular treatment field. Spoiler, we are now able to produce healthy and faulty hearts for research. And then we commented on some amazing stories from the history of heart surgery to finally move on to some more personal questions, including the time he had to save his own wife's life. Check it out. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome to Science Stories. Welcome everybody to a new episode of Science Stories. Today I have a really special guest. I'm going to be talking with Dr. Juan Torrado, that he's both a medical doctor and he's also a PhD. How are you doing, Dr. Torrado? Thank you so much for inviting me to your program. I'm doing very well. Thank you. So, Dr. Torrado, he's a cardiologist, but he also has a PhD. Can you introduce yourself, please? Yes. So, um... Juan Torrado. I'm a MD and PhD. I got my medical degree and PhD in Uruguay, South America, down down there, like, and uh, this small country but with great potential, you know. And um, I did cardiology in Uruguay. In Uruguay, there is no need to do internal medicine first. So I, after medical school, I went straight to cardiology. I did three years in cardiology. So it's kind of a residency instead of a fellowship. But when I was, you know, doing some research here in the United States, I also realized that I want to be, you know, retrained in the United States. So I took the steps and I started like an internal medicine training here in New York. Actually, I'm in New York. And um, now I, I could say that I'm MD, PhD, cardiologist and doing internal medicine and trying to apply for cardiology this year. So this is kind of my professional background. Which is amazing. It's a, it's a lot to be a PhD and an MD as well. Thank you so much. Here in the United States, it's very interesting because medical students can choose a specific pathway, which is MD-PhD program. So everything is settled to do both professions at the same time. It's kind of longer, the, you know, the, the curriculum. In my country, we don't have that pathway. So if you want to do both, you, you got to try to find a way to do both professions. Yeah, I think you're one of the few people that I know that your medical background and your scientific background is so strong. And, and this leads me to the question, do you see yourself more as a scientist or as a doctor? Well, that's a very important question because, you know, 
everybody, when they see that you like both uh, professions, they will ask you, like, uh, what is the percentage of your time that you're going to invest doing research? Or, like, what is the percentage of, like, seeing patients? And actually, I like the idea to, to do both. I remember the last paragraph that I put in my personal statement saying, like, uh, my short-term goal is to be retrained in cardiology, being able to, you know, to address all the needs of a complex cardiovascular patient. But my future goal is to become like a physician scientist, able to build my own research team and also being able to mentor people. And, uh, yeah, I like the idea to, to be able to try to build this research group in order to find a way to put basic science and, uh, and clinical science together, you know, translational research. I think the best way to find solution in the clinical arena is to bring people from basic science and complement and, you know, everybody will add different perspective. At the end, this is what progress is going to be more likely to be achieved. So do you think you need different characteristics to be a doctor and a scientist? Like, for example... The easy dichotomy would be you have to be super, you have to have a lot of empathy to be a doctor and you don't need necessarily that for being a scientist. You just have to be a reasonable man. Do you see it that way or as you say, that the, since they complement each other, it doesn't necessarily have to be that way? I think we as doctors, we got to have these social skills to treat patients well. But in a, at the same time, as researchers, you got to also interact with your co-workers and you know, with uh, your postdocs or your with your PIs, so these skills are also important, like because we are, are interacting with people. So I, I I wouldn't say like there is a special skill that you need to have like as a doctor, just like a, as a professional in general. So these are like great values that you you gotta have in general. So, Dr. Torrell, you're a cardiologist, and we're gonna talk a lot about the heart. Would you mind? And I know this is a really broad question, but To warm up the audience, can you please walk us through like the basic physiology and anatomy of the heart? Yes, that's an uh, interesting question. So I know it's, general, a, it's a huge question. I, I'm sorry, but just in general. Exactly. So I will. So the heart is a is a pump, right? And the arteries are like tubings. The heart basically has four chambers: two atria and two ventricles. So we can divide this heart as uh, two different hearts that are connected in series. So the left heart is the one that pumps the blood into different organs that perfuse the organs. And the right heart is the one that pumps the blood into the lungs. So once the blood is pumped to the lungs via the pulmonary artery, the blood gets oxygenated, you know, and, um, and then once the blood gets oxygenated and get rid of the CO2, so the left heart will receive the blood and will pump again to perfuse the organ. And then once the organs are perfused, the blood will come back to the heart, to the right side and so on. So the most important thing of the heart is to perfuse the organs to, and uh, also to auto-perfuse itself because the, the heart is also an organ and needs like, oxygen and nutrients to, you know, to work well. So the cardiovascular system in summary is, like, uh, is composed by the heart and, and the great vessels. And the most important function is to perfuse the organs and to provide the oxygen and nutrients for the metabolism of, of each tissue and organs. Right? It's a broad question, but um, I think it's no, no, it's, it's perfect. Yeah, thanks. That's 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 the summary I was looking for. And actually, can I ask you some terms that I know are related to cardiology? Can of course. You, can yeah. you briefly define them? For example, arrhythmia. 
Yeah, arrhythmia is, is a term that refers to any change of the heart rhythm. So the heart needs some electrical system to, to function well. And this electrical system is the is the one in charge in create the cardiac cycle. You know, the cardiac cycle mm -hmm. is uh, so the, this pump is very interesting because it's not like a continuous pump that will, you know, continuously produce like flow, like continuous flow. It's like a pulsatile pump. It will alternate like a period of pumping ejection with a stroke volume and then a period of relaxation and feeling process, which is called diastole and systole. In order to function well, the, uh, so the heart needs this like electrical system and arrhythmia is the pathological stage in which, you know, the, the rhythm of the heart is abnormal, right? So usually uh, we have a regular rhythm right? Like 80 beats per minute, something like that. And uh, when, when like a patient has an arrhythmia, so this rhythm is completely abnormal. So it can be irregular, can be slow, can be fast. Mm -hmm. So this is uh, the, the definition of arrhythmia. Mm -hmm. What about tachycardia? Yeah, tachycardia is, refers to a heart rate greater than 100 beats per minute. So the heart is pumping to right like it's a pulsatile pump and when the the rate is greater than 100 it is called tachycardia and when the rate is less than 60 it is called bradycardia mm. so tachycardia and bradycardia can be just a, a normal response to anything if i need to run for example my heart rate will go up and uh and this is like a normal expected finding for exercise for example mm, what about cardiac arrest well, yeah, cardiac arrest is the worst condition that we as cardiologists can face, right? Um, it's the sudden loss of the pumping ability of the heart. So from one second to another, the heart stops pumping and there is no blood pressure. Blood pressure is completely undetectable and the, and the blood flow, the, the blood flow like stops to, to, you know, to the brain, to the heart and to the rest of the organs. If, if, if it remains untreated, the patient will die in, in minutes. So basically when the heart stops. Correct. Stop pumping. So actually the heart can be, you know, a pumping, but inefficiently or directly stop working completely. But the, the idea is like there is no blood pressure and the patient is arrested. Mm -hmm. So in the hospital, for example, if you're rounding, so they will call in the speaker, like cardiac arrest code, please, cardiac arrest code, like second uh, north building five, for example. And you gotta go, if you're on call, you gotta go running to that area because the patient is gonna die if you don't do CPR and, you know, do the, the ACLS, like advanced cardiac life support. And this is not the same as a cardiac infarct though, or is it? Well, it, the cardiac infarct is one of the most common conditions that can lead to cardiac arrest. Cardiac infarct is just, I was saying, like the heart uh, pumps and also auto-perfuse itself. Like the heart has arteries mm -hmm. tubing to, you know, to feed himself, right? And uh, when one of those arteries gets occluded, has, for example, like a plaque or a clot or something like that, uh, so the blood flow to a specific area of the heart will stop and the, the heart becomes ischemic. And if the ischemia is not resolved, this, the, the muscles are starting to die. And this is cardiac infarct, right? So cardiac infarct is usually detected with, in, with some lab studies on the, or, uh, on the EKG. 
So the cardiac infarct is the main cause of cardiac arrest uh, in general. Is cardiac infarct commonly known as stroke? Well, stroke is a term that is usually used for brain infarcts, not for the heart. Ah. So stroke is when the patient has the same pathophysiology, but in the, in the brain. So this is also known as CVA. It's like a cerebrovascular accident. Like it's ah, a, okay, okay. Like infarct of the brain, basically. And then finally, a cardiomyopathy would be something that, like anything that affects the heart? Yeah, yeah. So cardiomyopathy is like a disease of the muscle, of the, of the heart muscle. When the, the heart muscle becomes weak, and for any reason, for any cause, this is a cardiomyopathy. It's like a disease of the cardiac muscle. Usually the cardiomyopathy, so 50% of the cases are usually caused by like uh, ischemic heart disease when there's a problem in the arteries, but also there are like genetic diseases and like different inflammatory diseases, everything that will impair the muscle, you know, the muscle tissue in the heart, this is called cardiomyopathy. All right. Thanks for these great definitions because when I was reading your work, I ran into this all the time and, and it was a lot of work finding all these definitions and all that and, and hopefully this will help our audience. So can we dig into your research, into your, into your actual research that, that you've done and you've published? Of course, of course. So you published recently an, an article in Heart and Rhythm Oxygen journals. Yes. That yes. the aim of the study was to understand the role of tachycardia and irregularity in causing cardiomyopathy. And yeah. to test this, you basically induced tachycardia and irregular heart function to dogs and examined the effect on cardiomyopathy. Can you, can you please talk us through what, what you found? I did two research experiences in, uh, at VCU, Virginia Commonwealth University. So I work with uh, EP people like electrophysiologists and um, my PI, which was Jose Huizar, he, uh, he was using this model in which this animal underwent a pacemaker implantation. And with the pacemaker, we were able to deliver like electrical stimuli you know, and capture the heart. And we were able to create this PVC-induced cardiomyopathy. So first of all, PVC is a premature ventricular complex, mm -hmm. which is like an extra beat. Um, so when imagine that your your heart is like beating like regularly, tuk, 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 tuk. the PVC is an extra beat. It's like tuk, tuk. in patients with high burden of PVCs, which is like a, with this irregular rhythm, they usually develop a weak heart. Right. So in order to, to be able to understand why these PVCs are able to induce cardiomyopathy, we had to create this model to replicate this model in animals. Of course. So that's why we, we use these animal models to implant these pacemakers to create these PVCs. And uh, we basically uh, induced 24 hours, seven for several weeks these PVCs and uh, and then with ultrasound we were checking the you know the heart function and we found despite the rhythm was irregular in the atrial or in the ventricular based models the reason why this heart be became weaker was not because of the irregularity or the increase of in the heart rate this is specifically related with the location where these extra bits were being produced. 
And there are some hypotheses regarding this model, but we haven't found like a real answer yet to, to this question. And that happens often, right? You have a hypothesis <laughs> and then you test it and you just kind of find the answer, right? Correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. I may have a silly question. Um, something that caught my attention is that you only used female dogs. Is there is there a reason for that? Are the females, do the females have a, a specific characteristics males don't have? Well, actually, so that's a very interesting question. I think it's just for convenience. Like female dogs are, you know, less aggressive, I guess easier to train and less messy. It's just like um, there. So I guess it's just like for for convenience, not like for anything in particular, not related with with sex. I think it's easier, you know, to to train and less aggressive and and they're like uh you know nurturing like most of them or yeah. all, all of them yeah all right thank you regarding your article about and i'm probably gonna pronounce this wrong sacubitril and balsartan these two Correct. drugs can, can you pronounce them please yes yeah, balsartan. yeah okay. this is it, what you said i run into yeah. an interesting concept that it's cardiac remodeling what is cardiac remodeling? Yeah, cardiac remodeling is the process in which the heart uh, gets adapted to like a specific condition, right? You can, uh, your heart, if you do like a lot of exercise and uh, your, your, your heart is being stressed because of the exercise, your heart is going to get remodeled. You know, the muscle will grow, you're going to have like hypertrophy, so your heart is going to become like more enlarged. This is something that, you know, is, is a good cardiac remodeling. Cardiac remodeling is any process in the heart size and shape in response to any stimulus of any kind, right? But there is also like a normal or adverse cardiac remodeling in which like the heart is ex exposed to, you know, to abnormal uh, condition, for example, high blood pressure or like, or like a, an infarct, ischemia, something creating like an abnormal situation for the heart. This is, so the heart will try to adapt initially, but at the, in the long term, so it's going to be, you know, abnormal for the heart and, uh, and the cardiac remodeling is going to be, you, you know, deleterious in the, in the long run, right? So as doctors, you would try to avoid this kind of cardiac remodeling, right? Correct. We usually gi give medications if in, if for in patients that they have like abnormal cardiac remodeling just to, to reduce or to revert this remodeling process. But for example, if you are doing exercise, you're going to have like a remodeling process, which is an adaptive uh, phenomenon, which is okay. But the most important thing is what kind of stimuli are you getting if the stimulus is abnormal you likely ha will have like abnormal cardiac remodeling so uh, and this is where these drugs come into play right exactly exactly so sacubitril valsartan is a you know it's a kind of a, a relatively new drug which is the first class of this kind of drug because it's it's a dual drug it's a combination drug it's two drugs put together to create this kind of new drug. So the, the idea to use this drug in the, in, a, in the study that we conducted is to test a new role. So how, how come that the drug was released or approved if you still didn't know so much about it? 
Yeah, that's a very good question. Actually, so there's like a large body of evidence that uh, supports the use of balsartan in cardiovascular disease. But the, the, the new findings, like especially the, the, the trial, the paradigm trial, they used for the first time this combination drug, right? And um, although there was some preclinical evidence about in, especially in rat and mice, the results in the clinical trial were very, very impressive. So that's why this led to the FDA to get approved for patients with heart failure. But, you know, every time that you get like a very impressive benefit with a specific drug, you try to expand and to see whether, you know, you can also, uh, patients can get also benefit in different areas. Mm -hmm. And one of those areas that we were testing was like ischemic heart disease. Heart failure, which is like a failing heart, can be caused by different pathophysiological mechanisms, right? One of those is cardiac infarct, like heart attack, right? And we were specifically testing whether Entresto, Sacuvitri Valsartan, was able, you know, to provide any benefit in specifically in this particular, you know, disease, which is ischemic heart disease. So which was not studied before in any, any, any kind of models or in patients. Yeah, and just in case, luckily the results of the study show that this drug indeed offers a robust infarct-sparing benefits. Yeah, exactly. Fortunately, the results were very promising and, and the medication got like fully approved. And now we are using this medication every time in the clinical arena. We're very happy with our results. Why, why do you use rabbits for this study instead of dogs? So, yeah, actually, it's a very good question. So, first of all... You, you gotta have like a very good explanation why you are gonna use animals and not like doing a like an in vitro model or something like that. First of all, you gotta you know do very good argumentation that you're gonna choose an animal model. So we ch chose like rabbits just because it's a large uh, animal model which is closer to the human anatomy and physiology. Of course, dogs are more. Like are similar to the human uh, physiology and anatomy, but if you are able to get important information or like get closer to your answer, like do, using like a less you know complex animal model, you gotta use it. So if you, for example, if you use dogs instead of rabbits in this particular study, you might have like a federal issue because there is a federal law that prevents using animal models that are complex than the ones that are needed. So, and uh, this also a welfare, you know, animal act. They're like kind of regulation that, that uh, thanks God, they are this regulation. Because of course, uh, yeah. Mm -hmm. And what about pigs? Aren't pigs the most similar anatomically to humans? Pigs are difficult animal model. Like sometimes they're a headache. So for like electrophysiological studies, especially when you are using pacemaker or you're trying to develop like an arrhythmia model, speaks are the worst because they have like a very long refractory periods. You got to try to capture the heart with the electrical stimulus and they're very difficult, you know, to to work with. Very difficult. The dogs for EP, for the electrophysiological studies are classic ones because they have like very short a refractory periods, you can do whatever you want in terms of like, you know, arrhythmia models. Um, so it's very classic, the dogs for, for EP studies. Pigs are more classically used for, you know, 
coronary artery studies because they mm. are big enough to place balloons, stands, mm -hmm. and the, the, those kind of models like infarcts and whatever. So rabbits are like a like a like a, is considered a large animal model, like a freaking animal model, but it's less complex in terms of uh, of animal species uh, comparing to dogs or, or pigs. Dr. Torado, I I saw that one of your most cited articles is a, a review paper that you talk about restenosis, thrombosis, and bleeding. Can you first explain what restenosis and thrombosis are, please? Yes, yes, of course. So, you know, stents are like a small device or scaffold that you place inside the, the arteries in order to regain the patency of the artery. Patients that are diabetic, uh, high, have like high blood pressure, like hyperlipidemia, they start developing some blockages inside the heart, like these plaques, you know, cholesterol plaques, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, these arteries can get occluded, right? If they become very narrow, they can get occluded and they, uh, like an infarct can can happen right so so they are like these stents that were, were developed you know like a small mesh like a small scaffold that you play inside the artery and will open up the artery in order to regain the, the blood flow through the artery two of the most important complications of stenting of this these stents is one is stent on thrombosis which is like the development of like acute blood clot inside the artery which which leads to an, an infarction like a like heart attack And the second one is restenosis, like a very slow growing of a tissue material, which is called neohindimal hyperplasis, kind of like connected tissue with some muscle cells that slowly start growing, growing, growing at, until one point that the stent can get completely occluded. One is very like a sudden onset, you know, occlusion, and the other one is a very small growing process inside the artery. And there's kind of a trade-off between treating each condition, right? Be I was really glad to find that there's a reference to the Odyssey that explains really well this trade-off when treating these conditions. And if you don't mind, I'm gonna I'm gonna read what says in the article: Odysseus' ship navigating through a strait in which two sea hazards are situated close enough to each other that they pose an unavoidable threat to the passing sailors, avoiding. Charybdis, that in this case would be restenosis, could mean passing too close to Scylla, that in this case would be thrombosis. As well as avoiding stent thrombosis could represent increasing severe bleeding. First of all, I, I, I really like this comparison. Um, did you come up with this idea? Actually, it was not my my direct idea. So it was like a Leo Buckley's idea. So he's the second author of the of the review article. So he came up with this brilliant idea after, uh, you know, we brought the paper. He's an amazing farm doctor and um, also a youth, um, amazing person. So, but um, I was like, you know, reading a lot of papers, like gathering information for this uh, review article, you know, and uh, and I, I really liked reading those that were like, offering like a story or analogy or a comparison about like a phenomenon that they were describing, right? And I guess this is particularly uh, important or, or classic for editorials. So in order to capture the attention of the readers, you will put like a very interesting title so you gain the attention of them. Leo, Leo Buckley, um, he he told me how oh, so this, this the, the the phenomenon that we are trying to you know to describe this is fits perfectly fine for the audience. The story of stenting is 
classically described as a, you know, trying to deal with these two hazards, right? Stent mm -hmm. thrombosis, stent restenosis. And the more that you treat one, the more you get the other one. And the, this like, like analogy was like, uh, yeah, this is ship. like yeah. these passing sailors trying to avoid one monster they were getting facing the other one. And there is no way that you can, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Dr. Yeah. Torello, is it true that you, for this article, you made all the illustrations in paint? <laughs> well, actually, that's not true. I was using paint and PowerPoint. <laughs> <laughs> Well, in any case, I mean, they have an amazing amount of detail and they're really good at all the figures. So regardless what program you used, they end up really, really good. So before we go into a break, I would like your opinion on, on two topics that were recently published in Science. And both of them blew my mind. One of them is that nowadays, apparently, there's the possibility to have remote control of the heart. If I understood correctly, they implant a closed-loop sensor that controls heart function in patients that had surgery in the in the heart and you can even control it with your cell phone yeah yeah that's like this is as you said like blow mind so this is incredible so actually i was not aware of this particular technology because this is a like a small pacemaker right so when you do like a like a heart open heart surgery as a complication of the procedure you, you can have an arrhythmia And sometimes you need to to leave some leads, but these leads that you might leave inside the patient's heart, like inside the, the patient's body, can lead to infection, complications, and, you know, like after four days, if everything's fine, you gotta take it out and you can have like additional complications. So now they, they develop this kind of like small bio by absorbable pacemakers that you can put it above the heart, you close it up, and then these are also like uh, getting controlled like wireless so that's like completely amazing and at the end this small pacemaker will get absorbed and you don't need to you don't put the patient at risk for any complication incredible so yeah, when i read the article i said oh my god this is yeah and this and sorry and and the other one that it's also mind-blowing is that apparently now we can we can generate hearts by design The authors of this paper came up with a method that they were able to fabricate normal hearts, that they would have the similar structural properties to a normal heart, but they can also deliberately misalign fiber orientation to build models for heart disease. And and this is crazy. I mean, we can build a heart. That that's that's crazy. And um, so I. So I I took my time to read this article because this is I was not aware of this technology and this is completely uh, like a very exciting uh, technology and i'm sure that it has a like a great pro potential uh, just because as you said you can recreate the heart but also create like a like abnormal situations right like uh, i we as cardiologists when we are like teaching you know medical students whatever you, we always say like you know the the heart like It's not like just like a hollow chamber that will contract like this, and so the heart has like a specific way that it get it contracts. So it has like a circumferential and radial and a longitudinal strain like this. Like imagine you have like a wet towel and you want to squeeze the towel. You don't do it like this. 
you squeeze it like the towel yeah. in order to, to get rid of the water. So the heart works like similarly like this. And this, all, these uh, investigators were able to recreate the, how these fibers uh, align properly. They create the extracellular matter. But where are the, the muscle cells? Where, where is the actual fibers? So apparently they take like, you know, stem cells for, from heart muscles from rats and they see this in this structure that they create and they were actually able to contract this uh, structure that they create and they can like misalign the fibers, which, you know, usually what happens in patients with heart failure, the heart becomes like, like a, like an sphere, like it's like a, something like a, like a circle like a like a ball right mm -hmm. so they are able to create like different uh, abnormalities of the heart and this has like a very interesting potential with future Nobel prize <laughs> i don't know i don't know but they, they might be close <laughs> yeah dr Toro, we're gonna do a short break and we'll be back with more science stories excellent science stories science stories Science stories, science stories, science stories, science stories. How many roads must a man walk down before you call him a man? How many seas must the white dove sail? Before she sleeps in the sand Isn't how many times must the cannonballs fly Before they're forever banned The answer, my friend, is blowing in the wind The answer is blowing in the wind Yes, and how many years can I hate to cut it, but before the break, we were listening to Blowing in the Wind by Bob Dylan, and now we're listening to the Concierto de Aranjuez by Joaquin Rodrigo and Paco de Lucia, which are famous guitarists. Why, why did you pick them? So Bob Dylan is one of my favorite like songwriters. When I was initially studying in medical school, I was always listening Bob Dylan, like something that 
followed me with during my medical school and i also like you know to play the harmonic i so blowing in the wind was the one that you really learned like how to play in guitar and to play with the harmonica at the same time unfortunately i don't have the harmonica here so i cannot like <laughs> it would be nice play a demonstration but i will i will i promise i will i will and the other one and the other one because i um i started to take like my my classical guitar lessons again of course i'm far away from from Concierto de Aranjuez, but um, I'm doing like Zoom guitar lessons with my prior, you know, uh, guitar professor. And um, now I'm starting like, you know, to learn some some classical uh, pieces as well. Yeah. It's really, it's really cool that you find time to pursue this music hobby that you have. So now we're going to move on to a little bit more general questions. And All right. Let's start it off with what are the biggest, biggest myths you commonly hear about heart or cardiovascular function that you would like to correct and and for example i can the one that i can think of is is it true that you feel pain in the left arm before you have a, a an infarct yeah that's very true that's okay. very true part of like you know the question that we ask to the patient when they have like chest pain because chest pain is a classic you know a, complaint of patient you know you can get chest pain because your muscle of your chest are hurting or like uh, of the bones the lungs you know but also the heart so chest pain is a very common common complaint but also can be very 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 important right like like threatening right and uh, since you know the nerves that are providing information from the heart are the same that provides information from the arm. So ah. the same neurons are getting the same information from the heart, from the from from the show, left shoulder, from the jaw, from the left arm. So these neurons are unable to locate the origin of the pain. Ah. So that's why you have like chest pain from cardiac origin. You might have like some radiation to the left shoulder and the left arm, but we gotta ask those questions during the patient encounter because this is very classic and can yield, you know, to a what important diagnosis so this is not a myth then this is true no okay this so is can you think of a myth well i think like kind of like a like a myth is like um high blood pressure hypertension so hypertension is a chronic condition that you know is very common in patients more than 40 percent of patients greater than 70 years old they they have like high blood pressure but high blood pressure is is very known because is you know it's a silent killer usually you don't get symptoms when your blood pressure is high so this is a real headache for us because they don't take the pills Jaimito, your blood pressure is high but you you gotta take your pills because you don't you are not gonna get any symptoms because you're high blood because you have high blood pressure in us it's a silent killer uh, and they usually don't take the medication because they say no i feel fine so since i feel fine i won't take the medication so this is a real headache, not for them, for us. It's just like to, you know, this is a, one of the most important conditions that requires in a patient's education, you know, because high blood pressure is a silent killer. It's one of the main causes of cardiovascular disease, but it's very difficult for us, you know, to to have the, our patient taking the medication because it's usually asymptomatic. Dr. Torado, I, I remember a biophysics teacher that one, once he asked the, the people in class, what do you think is the most important organ from the cardiovascular system? And of course, 
several students answered the heart and others may have said arteries and some others might have said something different. But to our surprise, he said, it's the capillary system because that's where the gas exchange occurs and that's irreplaceable. The heart is just a pump and the arteries and veins are just plumbing that those can be easily replaced. Do, do you agree with that? So I think that's a very smart statement. The, the cardiovascular system is created just like to, to deliver, you know, the oxygen and nutrients for the capillaries where the change happens and everything. But from a clinical perspective, most of the problems are actually happening in the heart or the, or the plumbing or the, the arteries, right? So, and uh, actually the problems in the heart, in the arteries are the leading cause of like death in, here in the United States, but in the world mostly. So I would say maybe physiologically is the most important thing, the microcirculation, the capillaries, but from the clinical perspective, we got to pay attention of the heart and the arteries, yeah. Do you think your answer might be a little biased since you're a cardiologist? Of course it is. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Dr. Torell, I'm not sure if you're aware of the story of Werner Forsman. That is the first person to perform a cardiac catheterization. Preparing this interview, I, I'm reading a book and this, this is the book. The book is named The Man Who Touched His Own Heart by Rob Dunn. That who is by far my favorite science author. He has like a few books, like quite a few books out. And I read a couple of them and they're all really good. So I, I recommend his books a lot. And this story happens in 1929. Do you mind if I tell it to the audience? Please. So this happens in 1929 in Germany. And apparently Werner Forsman was drunk at a bar one night and he just shouts out, I'm Werner Forsman. I am 25 years old and I'm going to insert a tube in the arm of a man and run it all the way to his heart. When I do it, I'm going to fix what is broken with him and I will change the future of the heart. And Forsman was a physician. He was not really a, a surgeon yet. So he had a pretty low position in the medical hierarchy and he spent a lot of time doing autopsies instead of treating patients. He wasn't quite respected. And he started noticing doing all these autopsies that many hearts had hardened valves or nearly blocked arteries. And he got frustrated that he was only able to notice these conditions only after the patient was already dead. Plus, these conditions weren't too complicated. They were just bad plumbing that might be even fixable if they could be identified. And so... Forsman imagine sending a device up through the arm vein and delivering medicines straight to the heart. And apparently this was something that was uh, already being done in horses back in, in the day. And so he told his boss the idea he had and he said, of course, do it, but do it in a rabbit. And he was like, nah, I, I, I don't want to do that. I, I wanted to do it in a human. And he convinced a nurse of the importance of the project and she accepted to participate in it. He tied her to the stretcher and he numbed her arm, but without her notice noticing, he also numbed his arm and he introduced the tube into himself. So he started performing the catheterism into himself. When he was not doing anything to her, she, she was confused and she looked and then she realized what he was actually doing 
And so by the time she realized, he was already past the elbow and he was already pushing the tube in. And it was only then that he learned that there are no pain fibers inside the veins. So he was willing to, to do this. He was so determined that he didn't know it was going to be painless, but he was, going, he was willing to do it on himself, even if it was super painful. But luckily for him, there, there's no, no pain fibers inside the veins. And he kept pushing, and he went all the way up the shoulder, and he was almost at the right atrium when he realized they had a, a, a major problem, and the problem was that they were not in an X-ray room. And he needed an X-ray machine to record the process and to have proof of what he had done, right? So then they walk <laughs> yeah. two flights of stairs down into an X-ray machine room. And there, there's a friend of, of him that as soon as he saw him, he actually tried to rip the tube off Forceman's arm. And Forceman, unable to use his arms, he had to kick him. Like he literally kicked him in the, shi in the shin to make him stop. And then finally they convinced the friend to, to keep going with this experiment. And they take a first x-ray, but the catheter was not even, like, it was not quite in the heart yet. So he pushes a little bit further in, and he finally gets an x-ray that shows clearly that the catheter is right in, um, exactly in the right atrium. And, and this is amazing, right? He, the first, so the first catheterism was performed by a man on himself. But what follows this is, a is actually a little sad because Forsman was never recognized by his surgeon peers for what he had done. So he had trouble getting a job and he was kind of exiled from his own discovery. And then in 1940, he went to a war and he was even, he was even held a war prisoner until 1946. And after that, him and his wife, they worked as urologists. They, don't, they didn't even get a job as cardiologists. Yeah, that's a yeah, which is which is pretty sad, right? I, I, something happened within the the surgeons, the German community of surgeons, that they just exiled him and they didn't like they didn't like him, and he kind of forgot about the whole thing. He worked as a urologist and and he didn't think too much about it. And in October 11 of 1956, Forsman was again at the at the pub, and his wife called him. And they call the bar and they say, tell Forsman to come home immediately. That is someone with a foreign accent trying to reach him. And the story says that he didn't care and he just continued drinking. <laughs> and, and yeah. And the next day at work, the director of the hospital, he approaches him and he says, I want to be the first one to congratulate you. You have received with two other Americans this year Nobel Prize in Physiology of Medicine. Incredible. Right? Yeah, so this is like quite like um, exciting and impressive because the you know the procedure that he did is actually like uh, one of the most important procedures that we do for our patients. So like cardiac catheterization, either like going to the heart through a vein, which actually what he did, or through an artery, which is like a, called the left heart catheterization, is one of the most important, you know, procedures that we can do for saving patients' life. So it's uh, very, very important because you can get inside the heart or you can get inside the coronary arteries from the heart and, you know, able to open up the artery, as you said, but also to measure, like, hemodynamics, to measure pressures, 
to measure resistances, to see whether we need to give more drugs, more vasodilators, pressors, you know, some medication to adjust, you know, the patient's hemodynamics and, and try to, uh, you know, revert what is happening with that patient. So this was like a was one of the most important paradigm shift in, in medicine. That's why he ended up receiving the Nobel Prize. Yeah, it's an amazing story. The author, he actually says this a couple of times in the story that Forsman was super determined. Like once he had an idea, he would he would carry it on, even if it meant doing it on himself, which is amazing, right? And what, one, yeah, is that's very, very amazing. And, you know, and most of these like kind of developments or like great ideas, these are happening against like a, the the common sense of of that time, right? Like uh, these revolutionary changes are happening against you know the the current, right? Mm -hmm. And these are very very because if everybody was expecting that is like n nothing that will change the history, right? Like yeah. you gotta times against the the mainstream uh, to bring these like very interesting ideas and and be courageous and to bring it up and develop. Yeah, and the book has many amazing stories related to hearts and yeah, all, all these amazing stories. For example, the first time somebody intervened or did surgery in a heart was because of a bar fight. Somebody stabbed in the chest, somebody else in the chest, somebody else, and they had to do uh, an emergency surgery because if not, he was going to die. There's a quote that says, it took 10,000 years and a bar fight to finally operate on the heart. <laughs> Yeah, that's yeah. incredible. But there, there's another story that it's it's really interesting, and it, and it's about the first time that a machine was used to bypass the heart in order to be able to operate the heart. And this is a story of John Gibbon, and occurs in 1953 in Pennsylvania. That apparently the, the he was once at a surgery helping a patient that had clots, and back back then the operation had to be done by feel because the the, the, the doctors couldn't see much. And so the mm -hmm. the league doctor op opened the, the chest and, and he went into the heart and he opened the pulmonary artery to find the clots. And of course, at, at, at this moment, the blood is spitting out, right? Because he cut okay. an artery, right? And he did eventually find the clot pulmonary artery and remove the clots, but it was too late. So the patient had gone too much time without blood in the brain and died. And at this moment, Given realized that they had to create a machine that kept the lungs and the heart going while they did surgery on it. And they have this amazing story that, I mean, I would read it, but it, it's a little long. The first surgery they did, it was supposed to last six minutes. And when they opened the heart, they, 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 they wanted to mend a hole in one of the valves that was connecting the two, the two chambers in the heart. And when he opened the heart, it was way bigger than they expected. And so a six-minute surgery turned turned into a 26-minute surgery. And in the middle, the machine, this is the first time they're using it, the machine ran out of blood thinners, and so it got <laughs> stuck. But they solved it, and the patient survived. Amazing, yeah. Amazing, right? And now, I actually, I'm really curious about how this machine works. I guess it's common procedure now, right? So, yeah, it's ex exactly as you said. Look, it's um, kind of like an extracorporeal membrane that you know works as a uh, capillaries as you were saying like um you know so actually bypasses the 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 patient's body so it will get the blood from the patient 
get oxygenized, get rid of the of the CO2, you know, like works as a, as a, as a lung. Of, of course, like this tubing needs to be hebronized like with these blood thinners. And then this with some, you know, filters, this blood is going back to the to the patient's body, right? Like it's like a kind of like a extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. So this like bypasses. So this allows you, you know, to work uh, longer with the patients, like even with the with the patient stopped. So the patient might be completely stopped with like a with a solution which is called cardioplegia. So this cardioplegia will, you know stop the heart like arrest your heart and the surgeons can work like easily you know not easily i'm saying course, like it, yeah. it's like very easy but it's not that easy but they can work like without the the heart like pumping or moving wow so yeah that's a very very was also like one of the most important shift like paradigm shifting in in surgery and yeah that's now is very common actually this kind of like uh, technology is also being used when the patient is like having like a very severe problem you can use which is called ECMOS as well it's kind of like this kind of technology as well and since we are discussing some stories from literature um, I guess we can also discuss some stories about the cinema and I don't know if you've seen this this movie it's a movie I really like that is called Something the Lord Made do you, do you know this movie? yeah yeah I know I watched that movie yeah it's amazing movie yeah you liked it yeah one of my favorites yeah so the movie so for the audience and the people who have not seen it the, the movie tells the story of of blalock and thomas who are the first people to operate the heart defect known as blue babies syndrome and this happens in the 40s 50s in at job hawkins um what does what does the blue baby syndrome consist of so blue babies is just like um, any you know congenital heart disease like that that means that the patient the babies are getting this like heart disease and uh, they're called blue babies because they, they 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 are cyanotic right so the the oxygenated blood is mixed with the oxygenated blood so that's why the the blood turns into blue and the, the, and the babies look like blue so the most common like cyanotic you know congenital heart disease is a tetralogy of fallot and tetralogy of fallot is like the is the you know this congenital heart disease that they were trying to deal with and try to find solutions because at that moment i don't remember exactly the what year these uh, great doctors were trying you know to offer solution for these babies but but these babies were dying like you know, in a few weeks, month, like even like some of them, if the if the defects are very severe, even hours after 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 the the mothers were delivering, so this was like a very you know sad story for parents for the children. So there was no solution at all, and as we were saying the, uh, before, these these doctors, these researchers were, you know trying to go against the current and to see like no this is something that we need to to be able to fix to help our patients and they try to develop ways to think especially one of the most important messages of this movie i guess is how they work as group of investigators trying you know to find solutions and uh, thinking proving testing failing 
thinking, reasoning. This is like an amazing movie because besides it has like a very important human things behind, you know? Yeah, yeah I was going to add, there's like a next level of complexity that is that Thomas, one of the protagonists, it's a black person and therefore he had to be hired as janitor and he had to enter the in institute through the back door and some of the times he didn't get the credit that he deserved. So there is also this a human aspect that you say that it's super interesting and, and he has a, a really bold approach to the whole racial issue that it's, it's I mean, it's inspiring, I think. Correct. Something the Lord made, I, I think we can both highly recommend it, right? Correct, Correct. yeah, yeah. So th this is a, a little game, right? Uh, a hypothetical situation. If you could ban one product that we can get rid from the supermarket, so it's a, a, a daily used product, to improve humanity's cardiovascular health, what product would that be? I don't know uh, if, if the question is clear or not. Yeah, yeah it's clear. Um, I'm not those kind of, kind of guys that ban things. I, I like Of course, freedom. of course. It's just but, a, yeah. But, but if I have to ban one product, I, I think I will go for the, the sausages, like the hot dogs. Like especially the high fat content, I think that they are poison. Like you know the the frankfurters or like yeah yeah so it's like you know, highly yeah. highly processed and really fatty, fatty and salty. You know they're like an atomic bomb for for, for our patients. Oh really? Right? Why? Why? Because they just because block. They're very salty, and they have like high fat content. So it's a Patients eating these kind of sausages are like a biological model for heart attacks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> eating so like took, took this, you know. If uh, you care about your heart, you should stay a little bit away from sausages. Yeah, especially the, the high, like the very low quality, high sodium content sausages are like the worst poison. Dr. Torado, we're going to do another short break and then we'll come back with some more personal questions if if that's okay got it science stories science stories science stories science stories Es que una garra me hará en esta suerte. 
tos tengo, tu tos oigo, tu canto en el mío. Rumbos paralelos, dos anzuelos en un mismo río. Vamos al mar, vamos a dar cuerda, antiguas vitrolas. Vamos pedaleando. Wow, I love both songs. So before the break, we were listening to Solo le pido a Dios by Mercedes Sosa and Leon Gieco, which would translate um, the only thing I ask from God. And it has a really peaceful message, which is really nice. And now we're listening to Jorge Drexler with the song called Salva Pantallas, which means screensaver. And I mean, it's kind of a silly question, but why did you pick these songs? So Jorge Drexler, as you might know, is like is um, Uruguayan a song composer, songwriter, and and he is also like a physician, right? Like um, he actually. I guess he did the ENT, which is otorhinolaryngology, but at the end he ended up like you know only doing like music. But um, yeah, I just want wanted like to bring something about my country, and uh, because he's and also I, I listen a lot of like Jorge Drexler is like a, a rock star. Is a, is I, a, I would say he's a, one of the best lyric writer that it's out there in Spanish at least. Correct. His lyrics, yeah. his lyrics are amazing. It's just totally. He's he's such a poet. I mean, we could I could I could talk about Drexler an hour at least. Yeah, of all his lyrics, his poetry, it's he's amazing. He won an Oscar actually. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the story of him collecting the Oscar is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's such the a, whole package, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What a, what a national pride there we have. Yeah, all right, correct. so can we move on to more personal questions? And if you don't like any questions, you can also say uh, you can pass, okay? Go on. Can you please explain what is the main difference between the Uruguayan and the American health system? So actually, that's a very complex question because, um, yeah, they're like, it's a complex question. But I think like if I, you know, if I need to give you a strength, a straight answer i would say maybe in uruguay our health coverage is based on the on the institution of the you know of the hospital for example you can be from texas heart institute for example and all your your care is under texas heart institute right and uh and not from methodist hospital right but maybe in in here in the united states so our health coverage is based on health insurance, right? So your your code is being paid to the health insurance and then you can get like the, your medical care can be, you can go to different hospitals and the health insurance will afford, you know, the, the, the different care. So I think here in the United States, like being from one single center is not mm-hmm. possible because like everything is spread out, like it's not, as centralized as our country, our country is very small, and most of the families remain in the same spot or like close to the same spot. And you know, but here in the United States, everything is spread out. Everything is decentralized. So you might be today in Texas, but like in yeah. two months, you are living in Miami. 
I think there's also an, a big economic difference, right? Totally agree. Paradoxically, poor countries, they use like public health system more than, you know, rich countries. But here we, we have Medicare, Medicaid, which is also like part of like coverage for specific populations. So I, I think it's, it's a very, I'm not an expert regarding that. So, but um, I think there are some other differences, but in general, I think the most important thing is that y your care is through like one center in Uruguay and your care here is, is through like health insurance other than a specific center. The doctoral, is it true that your girlfriend, when this happened, wife now, had a stroke and you saved her? Well, yeah, well, actually she had a kind of like a shock, like septic shock. It was like a, one of our most uh, difficult times of our lives, actually. So it, it happened in 2018. So in the beginning of 2018, at that moment, we were like uh, studying for the steps, you know, to get like the MD certificate here in the United States. And also we were like planning our wedding. It was a very complex time for us. But um, I remember I was working at the hospital and my, so my, was, my wife, so my girlfriend at that moment, my, my wife now was like getting some sore throat fevers, you know, was a like, kind of like common viral infection. And so we didn't pay much attention. So my wife like stopped working for a couple of days and, and I was still working. And one time she called me by myself and saying like, hey, Juan, I'm not feeling very well. Can, can you come over? So I went back home and, you know, and, and she said, I feel like my blood pressure is, is low. And, you know, I was like, you know, she had a fever, sore throat, myalgia, like some generalized symptoms, but nothing really severe. So at the moment I was taking, like measuring the blood pressure, taking the blood pressure. So one, so I was unable to get any pressure. So I, you know, I was using my stethoscope, like getting the blood pressure undetectable. One second after my wife, like, became unresponsive oh my god so it was like a, oh my god what i'm doing what so and i started to scream so every all my medical knowledge <laughs> disappeared you know, and and i started to scream my parents were downstairs so i started to do cpr like at that moment so my first thing is like blood pressure is undetectable like i started to do cpr like so I, I think like was like for like 15, 20 seconds, I started to scream, scream. My mother was downstairs. I started to scream as well. I started to do CPR, CPR, like 20 seconds after, which actually, you know, it felt like an eternity, right? Of course. She woke up and she was saying, what, what's going on? I'm, I was sleeping. Oh my God. Oh, crying it was like a disaster. So, and I tried to take her to the hospital and she said no no i gotta dress myself so it was like like i gotta dress myself you know <laughs> my, my pajamas i need to dress up uh, i said manuela what's what what are you saying let's yeah, yeah. <laughs> no and she took like you know she put some clothes on and uh, oh my god i so i took her like i rushed to the hospital with her like um Usually you gotta call the ambulance because you know they can bring the equipment to your your home because it, so actually I assume very like risks that are not like uh, recommendable so you gotta call the ambulance of call course. the nine one one you know but I 
I my first instinct was like to take her. I drove her to the hospital, and uh, the moment that she uh, entered to the hospital, I knew the people in the hospital, so they helped me out, and and she had like a she 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 was placed on pressers. She went to the ICU. She had a septic shock, and uh, we. At the end, we didn't know what kind of organism or like infection she had, but uh, was very severe. She required pressors like BiPAP, like this strong mask. Like almost she got intubated. Dr. Torrado, did you always wanted and uh, knew you wanted to be a doctor? Well, actually, um, like all the, the vocational tests predicted otherwise. Actually, I always loved mathematics, you know, like logics, you know, mathematics, especially, you know, I, I, I thought I was going to become a, an engineer like my father. But then everything happens like when I was taking biology, in like high school. And, uh, you know, I we got like a like surprise test that for the female anatomy, you know, like, imagine that there is no place for imagination in the <laughs> in the de denomination of the human reproductive like internal organs right i didn't know anything so so imagine the the outcome of the test was like a disaster so uh, my biology uh, professor said like juan if you gotta you know promote like next year you gotta do something else you, you gotta you know improve otherwise so i remember the the following uh, lecture was like endocrine system so I studied as hard as possible, you know, to, to do well and to be able, you know, to promote. And I was starting, you know, to start like this kind of like hormone receptors, like how the intercellular mechan like signaling, you know. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating stuff. So I said, oh, my God, I love this. <laughs> and, then, like, uh, and then the next class was like how these organs were functioning together. I said, maybe I need maybe i want to be a doctor but i was like assuming that doctors are like white coats you know and on the on the you know on the on the doctor's office like saying hi ah, but at the end i started to to realize that medicine is very broad and you can do like many different areas and stuff so i said maybe uh, i need to become a doctor so i i, I like went to medical school and then So as I was telling you, cardiovascular physio physiology, you know, blew my mind, blew my mind. And, and I said, like, maybe I need to become a cardiologist, right? Like the heart function, how the, the pumps works and everything. Like I became fascinated very rapidly. Wow, what a story. Hmm. <laughs> yeah. um, Dr. Torello, I actually got in contact with one of your patients. And I have a patient testimony that... So she told me that you and her, I don't want to disclose the name just in case, <laughs> got pretty close because of the amazing way that you treated her husband and that you would even wait for her outside the hospital when she was when, when you knew she was coming with a team of nurses and with the medical stretcher already prepared to make things easier for her and, and him. It's I think that's that's amazing. I mean, it, it says so much about the kind of person you are. Yeah, I remember that story actually, and um, yeah, I became very close to the family, and um, so I loved the patient and the the wife of the patient, and um, so I, so we were talked like usually we don't need to provide our you know contact information like our personal information to our patients. 
but I'm not kind of those doctors. I usually I do the opposite. So I like, you know, to be in touch with them. And um, so I, I think this created like a, you know, a closed loop as like the patient maker, right? Closed mm -hmm. loop because um, I'm able to get in touch with them very quickly. And also they are able to get in touch with me. So this, you know, um, rapid or efficient mechanism was able to, you know, to provide the best patient care. So at the moment that the patient came, so everything was settled and, and we were able, you know, to to do better for the for the patient. That's amazing. And she also told me that it was common to see you run through the hospital corridors, not not in an emergency, just in normal consultation hours, just to keep your patients from waiting long. Is is this true? Yeah, this is true. And you know, <laughs> you know, one of the nurses here in here, actually in the United States, not in Norway, you know, they created this act nickname, Speedy. <laughs> So the, I so you know sometimes it's difficult to to analyze yourself and to see you from outside and how do you behave right and uh, after this I didn't know that in Uruguay they also realized that I was running like but I don't know I'm always like a run to do something because like every second counts right that's amazing so I'm, that's amazing that's so so yeah wow that's so cool and then finally. Is it true that your mom is a great cook? Yeah, yeah. She's like, uh, actually, she does art by cooking. She's an artist in the cooking thing. <laughs> but uh, I usually like like the more simple. So she she can do like, you know, very great things by cooking. But I I usually like the simple things. Like, like what? What's, what's your favorite dish from her? Milanesas, for Milanesa. example. Which is, is which is breaded steak. Correct. Dr. L, did you have a good time? Yes, I'm, I'm enjoying very much. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for participating of Science Stories. I, I had a great time. I really enjoyed your stories. I think it was an amazing episode. Thank you so much. Thank you for inviting me in your, in your podcast. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to Science Stories. Wow. Wow.